Welcome to the Monash University Perioperative Medicine podcast series. I'm Dr. Christine Ball, and today I'm speaking with Professor Paul Miles on the contentious issue of postoperative oxygen and surgical site infection. Thank you, Paul. So we start with the first question. What was your reaction to the WHO 2016 recommendations relating to oxygen in the postoperative period? So these recommendations were published in Lancet Infectious Diseases in December 2016. Uh, that's summertime here in Australia. I read that uh, down the beach on my summer holidays and I was quite surprised to read that the first recommendation uh, series was that um, supplemental or, or high inspired oxygen concentration should be used during all types of surgery and for up to six hours otherwise in order to uh, reduce the risk of surgical site infection. And certainly in my own knowledge base uh, and uh, both the research I've done, the journals I've read uh, and the experts I've otherwise spoken with uh, were of the view that in fact although it was a interesting hypothesis and then some early preliminary data supported it, that later studies and bigger and better studies uh, overall with the weight of evidence uh, did not support that recommendation. So I therefore read this particular article quite closely and it was on reading that that I began to have some serious concerns about some of the um, studies that were included uh, in the analysis for the recommendation. So that's when you became concerned about the reliability of the studies? That's right. Um, you know, when uh, you look at the detail, not just of the uh, publication itself, but the supplementary material, which included a forest plot of all the individual studies in a meta-analysis, there, there seemed to be a, a group of studies by a single author or, or team uh, Mario Schiatroma and colleagues from Italy uh, that, inf that had reported uh, quite marked reductions in surgical site infection with high inspired oxygen. Uh, these were consistent, very positive studies and they were really quite um, uh, different from many or most of the other studies in the meta-analysis and they just seemed to stand out as being unusual. So what was your first public response to this? Well, obviously the first thing I did was to look at these studies and other work by Mario Schiatroma and his colleagues. Uh, and there, there was a, a really uh, a big number of studies uh, in a range of journals, all surgical journals, that showed very positive findings from all sorts of interventions and, and including a number of studies with supplemental oxygen. Um, I redid the analysis without the Schiatroma studies, uh, which can be done relatively straight in a straightforward way. I obviously critically, critically read and appraised uh, each of the relevant uh, studies, uh, including Mario Schiatroma's work. And when you collate the evidence together, um, in fact, there was no supportive evidence uh, for the use of high inspired oxygen. I then contacted uh, an expert in this field, uh, Andrea Kurtz, who's senior researcher and deputy head of department uh, at Cleveland Clinic, uh, who was part of the authorship team that published one of the first papers uh, demonstrating uh, benefits. And I know that they'd undertaken further studies, very large studies, that couldn't replicate those findings. So uh, I invited her to join me in writing a, a commentary or editorial um, in the British Journal of Anesthesia. 
Now, I took this step really only after first submitting a letter of concern or a letter to the editor of Lancet Infectious Diseases, and they declined to publish that. So I felt it was important. Uh, anaesthetists and other perioperative physicians around the world needed to be, I guess, alerted to some concerns of data integrity in some of the studies, uh, and more importantly, of course, what the most reliable evidence was, was truly uh, demonstrating. And after that publication, you led an investigation. Can you tell us about that and how John Carlyle got involved? Well, I first did a lot of preliminary work. The more and more I looked or the deeper I looked, uh, more concerns were raised. And I thought to create, I guess, a more objective rather than subjective assessment of uh, the, the patterns of data, I had been aware of John Carlyle's amazing work um, looking at um, you know, data patterns, uh, particularly in randomised trials. And I know John, uh, John, you know, to some extent, I certainly admire his work greatly. And I, I sent him an email explaining my concerns of this particular uh, body of work. And he, he, I think, became very interested. And, um, you know, he, of course, had a lot to offer in quantifying the unusual data patterns. Uh, and in fact, also dug very deeply and found a lot of extra c things of great concern that, that I had not picked up. So in simple terms, what does the Carlyle method demonstrate? Well, the Carlyle method is a really, I think it's, a one, it's wonderful because it's quite simple but incredibly powerful. It really tests whether uh, randomised data follow a pattern of true um, chance or random, a, a random pattern. And you can do statistical tests that actually create or uh, calculate a p-value around the probability that, that it is chance proper random data. Uh, and it, it looks at the, the baseline characteristics, the, the data that's reported in a table one of most randomized controlled trials, and it just looks at whether or not that balance is truly random. You would anticipate that they would be comparable, but un it is very unusual to be completely the same in each group. And that's really what that technique does. Okay. So what do you see as the responsibilities of journal readers and of editors of journals? Well, I think um, all doctors, and certainly those that read journal articles and obviously journal editors and peer reviewers, uh, should always have a critical mind, uh, an open mind. Uh, they should always, I guess, consider the veracity um, or plausibility of study findings and how that fits with their existing knowledge or their own practice. Um, ideally, they should have some skills in understanding research design, uh, sources of bias, and the straightforward um, analyses that are done uh, both in randomised and non-randomised studies. So I think if you read any journal article with just a little bit of a critical mind, uh, you'll often pick up things that would concern you or might make you uh, conclude that the results don't apply to your own practice. I think that's the bare minimum. I think obviously uh, experts in the field, which should be the peer reviewers and the editors, need to have a higher level of skill in these areas. Uh, they should certainly be very um, open to, I guess, properly evaluating uh, both the design features and the analysis features, uh, particularly when reading the conclusions. 
Do you think they have an obligation to use the Carlyle method? Well, that's certainly something uh, I'm aware has uh, been taken up by the journal Anesthesia, uh, led by the editor-in-chief, uh, Andrew Klein. I think it's a, a really interesting, uh, probably important step to uh, look for and screen for any uh, unusual characteristics in any particular study. Um, I hear through um, John Carlyle that, uh, in fact, other bodies, including the Cochrane Collaboration, are considering similar things. And it's certainly something that I think perhaps the other anaesthesia journals or, in fact, all medical journals should at least consider. And it's quite a simple thing to do and freely available. Yeah, so uh, John Carlyle, uh, as I said before, is an in incredibly smart but very generous and hardworking person. He's made the software freely available um, so that can be used even by the average um, journal reader. So back to the original study, once you applied the Carlyle method, what were the findings? Well, the Carlyle method demonstrated, in fact, there was incredibly unusual patterns of data in the, each of the skiotrauma studies. Um, John Carlyle used some additional statistical analysis techniques looking at other types of um, data patterns that you can pick up not just in randomised trials but in non-randomised observational studies. And once I've again found really um, patterns of uh, data that really could not be explained by uh, the characteristics of the study populations uh, or the design of the study. Um, there are another types of analyses such as the Benford analyses approach, which was he also incorporated. And through his investigations and partly my own and also our other co-author, Bronwyn Scar, uh, we came across uh, examples of where there seemed to be duplication of figures um, from one study to another that looked uh, you know, to all intents and purposes, exactly the same. And these just simply could not be explained uh, really by the possibilities in any clinical study. So you have alerted the WHO to your concerns. What's been their response? Well, when I first uh, um, identified these concerns, um, you know, this is well more than a year ago, and it's taken that length of time, time to actually get to the bottom of this. I certainly sent um, uh, correspondence to the World Health Organization, the authors of the, uh, the recommendations, uh, equally other lead researchers in these fields around the world, and also the editors-in-chief of a number of the surgical journals in which I believed the uh, data being reported by uh, Mario Schiatroma and his colleagues uh, was requiring a formal investigation. I should also add that through this process, uh, given the importance of the issues, I've contacted the employer of Dr. Skiatroma, the university uh, which he works, and suggested that they also undertake an investigation, and uh, at least um, through the journal website uh, Retraction Watch, uh, it appears that is happening. And the WHO guidelines now no longer recommend? Well, sadly, not quite so. Um, okay. They've uh, done their own analyses, uh, this time very expert, uh, very up-to-date, uh, published uh, only uh, in the last um, month or so uh, in the British Journal of Anesthesia, um, where they excluded 
the Skiatroma trials, uh, and yet they still concluded that there, there may well be benefits of high inspired oxygen in surgery, but they are now limiting that to only circumstances where there's tracheal intubation and therefore um, more exact control of the inspired oxygen concentration. Now, I think that conclusion is open to debate. Uh, I have a very different view, but I think that's healthy scientific discussions that happen with all research uh, and all clinical practice. So do you think the results of the ENIGMA trial should be included in these discussions? Well, the results of the ENIGMA trial have been included in the latest, in fact, the original and the latest World Health Organization uh, analyses, equally by others who have done uh, meta-analyses on, on the same subject. Uh, and in fact, I've now included that in uh, our publication that's just come out in, in this, uh, on, the, on the website for anesthesia. Now, I have concerns about that. Uh, the Enigma trial was designed to test whether or not the removal of nitrous oxide could improve outcomes uh, in all types of major surgery. Now, obviously, if you remove nitrous oxide, you can therefore administer higher inspired oxygen concentration, and that was often, on, often the case in the trial, but it was not always the case, and it was not required in the trial. Nitrous oxide group, uh, although most patients got around about 30% oxygen, some got 40 or 50 or even more uh, uh, a higher inspired oxygen in that group. So on the basis of the original study hypothesis and the design, it's not actually a test of supplemental or high inspired oxygen. It, I guess by default is testing that, but in a, in a lesser way, and, and such that I don't think it has as much weight or validity as most of the other trials included in the most recent systematic reviews. So I would downplay its value, uh, and I certainly would consider an analysis without the Enigma trial being included as perhaps being a more clean uh, test of the hypothesis. And when you do that, in fact, the evidence becomes weaker still. So to sum up this particular issue at the moment, it's still contentious whether we should be using oxygen in the immediate post-operative period to prevent surgical site infection. Well, my view, and certainly uh, the conclusions of our analysis uh, in this recent article in Anesthesia, is that there is no evidence that higher or inspired oxygen or liberal oxygen reduces surgical site infection in any or all types of surgery. That is our conclusion and that is what the data supports. It remains a possibility that it may do so. It is still an open question to some extent, uh, but it would require a large definitive trial uh, to demonstrate such an effect before it should be recommended in our practice. And just on the flip side, there are dangers to giving high oxygen concentrations. Exactly. So in certainly in other areas of medicine, uh, we now know that uh, higher inspired oxygen concentrations can be harmful and it's no longer being used in, uh, in some settings, including, for instance, in critical care, uh, in following myocardial infarction, uh, perhaps also in caesarean section. Mm. So because of the stimulation of superoxide and other radicals, uh, there's probably a reperfusion injury that can happen. And certainly for older people with comorbidity having major surgery, this could easily 
be a potentially harmful effect. So that's a theoretical concern. It's also an open question. Uh, there's some evidence that would support the harm signal, uh, but again, further research is needed. Okay, and one final question about research, I guess, is is the Carlisle method infallible? Uh, I think it's a, a wonderful technique. If you truly understand what it's testing and how it's doing it, then like uh, a lot of things in life, you can uh, fool it or get around, around it. That is certainly a possibility. Um, it should not be relied on entirely to either um, prove or disprove uh, concerns around data integrity. It's a wonderful screening technique, uh, but it would be part of a suite of actions or analyses that would be done uh, before there would be sufficient evidence to make any valid conclusions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.